This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Today, in what is certain to be one of the first fights in the new legislative session, Republicans will be pushing for so-called austerity measures to try to address the economic damage done by the pandemic. Democratic Senator Joe Wynn is actively pushing back, and he joins us to talk about the fight ahead, and he also lays out his vision for progressive taxation. That's ahead. As most of you know, due to the pandemic, our state is facing a projected $4.4 billion budget shortfall over the next three years. In the upcoming 2021 session, Republicans in the legislature are expected to push for so-called austerity measures, which disproportionately impact people of color and the working class. 34th LD Senator Joe Wynn has a petition to reject austerity, and he is joining us right now to talk about it. Senator Wynn, how are you? Welcome. Hey, good. Thank you so much for having me. And it's kind of funny, before we got on, you were saying that how you're doing such a loaded question. Yep. I don't have COVID and I still have a job. So relatively speaking, I'm doing great. Exactly. Uh, and and Saturday made me feel a lot better um, yep. that a republic is still alive for another day. Yeah, here, here to that. Uh, yeah, but prior to that, I feel like we were definitely grading on a curve uh, in oh, terms too. of how <laughs> we're doing generally. Yeah. So, um, listen, let's just jump right in brass tacks here. For people who may not be familiar with the term, what is austerity? What does it mean? So an austerity budget essentially is when you have uh, budget cuts to make up a shortfall instead of, say, for instance, raising revenue to meet those gaps. And, and, and a budget cut would essentially reduce spending in the economy and, in my opinion, you know, cause it to be basically in a coma and not necessarily be poised to get back to where you want it to be in the first place. So high level budget cuts, um, austerity is when you make budget cuts instead of raising revenue to meet budget gaps. And what sorts of cuts, because the kind that that I generally associate with austerity are things like uh, cutting government programs, uh, raising eligibility age for retirement health care, lowering the wages of public employees, things like that. Yeah, just to kind of give you a lens in Washington state, kind of the scope of the problem you'd mentioned, there's about a $4 billion shortfall in the next few years. Um, What people don't know is that 85% of the budget in Washington state. So our budget is about 53, $54 billion. 85% of that is constrained, whether it's constitutional or whether it's things like Medicaid or long-term care that you would not want to cut because of federal dollars matching. So 85% of our budget, we can't really touch. So when we talk about potential austerity measures in Washington state or cuts in Washington state, you're talking higher education, early learning, child care, social service, social services, affordable housing, foster care systems, right? All the things that we know we desperately need to get us out of this pandemic, that's what's on the chopping block. And it's incredibly frustrating to see that oftentimes that's the first thing that people go towards and not necessarily more equitable solutions. Well, let's talk about the last time that austerity was implemented here in the state. And that was in response to the Great Recession in 2008. Can you talk a little bit about how it was implemented, what got cut, and then what were some of the impacts of that? Yeah. Yeah. Even just at a high level, uh, this happened in not just 2008, also 2001. And I get that the legislature was different. The dynamics were different at that point. But that really is a bellwether for how we should be handling this going forward. So back in 2008, we were able to get some federal funding that held us over. But the economy took a lot longer to recover. Right. And when that when that finally happened, we had to slash funding for TANF, uh, temporary assistance for needy families. My family was actually on TANF. We relied upon that when I was a kid to be able to exist and then thrive. We cut, ho- we kept funding for the housing trust fund. 
so we have uh, less affordable housing. Uh, we gutted funding for healthcare, including behavioral health. Uh, and we also had to increase tuition. We had to increase college tuition uh, to be able to meet that gap. So if you look at a lot of the systemic issues that we're facing right now, whether it's affordability, whether it's housing, whether it's homelessness, uh, whether it's increased costs for, say, for instance, higher education, people are so shocked when they say, oh, I can't believe homelessness has gotten so bad. This was a policy choice that we made back in 2001 and 2008. Homelessness was a policy choice that we made. During that exact same time, we didn't touch any, any tax exemptions for large corporations. They're all still on the books. During that time, we didn't raise revenue to help cover that gap, right? So when you see a disproportionate impact of the burden being put on working class families, and then you see working class families struggle years afterwards, to me, there's a direct correlation between the failures of those budget situations and the outcomes that we're seeing now, today, that exist in our society. Well, you know, I want to talk about some of the progressive taxation uh, proposals that I know that you're thinking about. Um, yeah. I would just ask you right now to paint a picture for us. If austerity were implemented right now in response to this crisis that we are currently in, what yeah. would you predict the fallout would be? Oh, first off, uh, first off, bad, right? So a lot of the things that we had just mentioned in terms of the negative outcomes. But here, kind of an interesting point, right? Like you have a lot of the fiscal hawks or the conservatives talk about the need for trickle down, right? Like less uh, taxes, less regulation will give you more. But what's interesting is in King County, we actually saw tremendous growth during that same time period. We saw record growth in Washington State, record growth in King County, because we didn't put um, any type of, say, uh, support for uh, people, but we did give breaks for large corporations. And if trickle-down economics actually worked, we should be seeing that happening well in King County, and obviously it is not. What we've seen is gross inequities. The rich have gotten extremely wealthier and the poor have gotten much more poor. So in my mind, the extreme divide in economic inequality is a direct result of kind of the policies that happened in the past. They've gotten even worse than it is now. And just to give you one example, there is literally one person in Washington state. In fact, there's actually multiple. But in this case, there's one person in Washington state that has made tens of billion dollars during the pandemic in stocks, tens of billions of dollars. I think I, think I know who we're talking about here. You probably know who that person is. Yeah. And if you if you just take what that person has made in the past few months, just what they made in the past few months, nothing to do with what he already has. If he were to cover the budget gap in Washington state, which he's not, and he's not on the hook for, there's no proposals for that. But hypothetically, if he was, it would be about $1.5 billion per year. It would take him nearly 70 years to spend what he has made in the past six months, right? So when we talk about the impacts of it, oftentimes they're very visible. The homelessness that we're seeing, the affordability that we know is not possible for a lot of us, the increased tuition for college students. Um, but then it's even greater than that when we have social services like TANF or BFIT, things that have kept families that were on the margin stable and being able to recover, those things could go away as well. So in my mind, if, if we have austerity measures in Washington state, which I, don't believe we will because we've had some great conversations with the governor's office, with other legislators. But if we did, you're going to see a lot of families struggling even more than they are now, right? We have an eviction moratorium in place right now. I guarantee you the moment that that is over, there's going to be a tsunami of evictions and then subsequent issues with homelessness. We cannot have that. We need to invest in being able to keep people stable and, being, and keeping them whole. 
Um, so if, if we were to have austerity measures in Washington state, it would be absolutely devastating for about 98% of us. And then the rest of them, the 2%, they're probably going to be even wealthier. So uh, we can't have that. And honestly, there's, they're going to be wealthy no matter what, right? So like if we had non-austerity measures, those folks would still be tens of billionaires instead of, you know, a fraction of a percent. There's still going to be multi-billionaires, right? Like it's the number is mind boggling. I mean, you you paint an extraordinarily grim picture. I, I, I have to ask just on a practical level, well, here's here's an observation that I continue to have, and we're talking about trickle-down economics, and you may or may not have uh, an answer to this, but I feel like austerity is almost a reflexive, a reflexive almost knee-jerk response to Republicans in, in times of crisis yeah. like this. I wonder if you agree with that, and if so, why do you think that is? It's lazy, honestly, and it's very simple. It's easy to understand, right? So, like, people mistake, say, for instance, your household budget or your business budget with the economy, right? Like, a budget is very different than the whole economy. You have to make sure that the economy is working for everybody and it's not right now. So it makes sense, right? Like I, I, I'm not faulting why people think that, yeah, if I lost my job, I need to stop spending money in order to kind of keep my budget whole. However, when you look at the programs that we're supporting, whether it's TANF, whether it's social services, whether it's diversion programs to keep people housed, the government is the last line of defense. There is nobody there else to help. So it is incumbent upon us to not just make sure that we're being mindful of our budget, but is ensuring that we have an equitable recovery when it comes to this pandemic response. So I don't fault people per se uh, when they think that, oh yeah, you should just make cuts and it should be fine. But that doesn't help us. Our goal as a legislator, for my job as a legislator is not to balance a budget. I mean, that's obviously the chair's, the chair's job and like our job as one of the components. But my job is to make sure that Washingtonians have the opportunity to succeed and thrive in this state. That's my job, right? So to me, that means investing in the programs and the infrastructure and the people who drive our economy and making sure that they are staying whole, staying housed, and can partake in economic growth again. I just love that as, as a philosophy. I'm just going to underscore what you said again. You you see your role here and your job is, is making sure that, that Washingtonians have an opportunity to succeed. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think that speaks volumes in, in terms of the kind of uh, lawmaker that you are. What specifically, as I mentioned, you have a petition now uh, that yeah. is uh, that you, you are calling for members to sign against austerity measures. What specifically does the petition call for? Yeah, so the petition itself um, is to reject austerity. And we want to be able to prioritize a lens of equity and justice for the underserved when we're developing our next budget. Right. So we need to be charting a course of recovery that is. Uh, long-term that, Im- that impacts our health and economic crisis without, in- without imposing ineffective and inequitable austerity measures. So essentially, we need to be investing in people instead of cutting people off uh, from the services that they need in order to survive. You know, policy should be about people. Our tax structure should reflect those values. And I believe that we can get that with the legislature that we have right now you know, over 250 people across the state have signed on. Everybody from senators to representatives, council members, school board members, community leaders. Um, I think there's a lot of energy in order for us to make sure that we invest in the people in Washington state. Do you anticipate a good deal of pushback from Republicans on this once the session starts? Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, that's just going to be a normal thing. And honestly, I, I expect a, a little bit of pushback from more moderate members as well. Um and that's just going to be a fact of life. People have different philosophies in terms of how they try to handle some of these things. 
I'm more of a Keynesian modern monetary theory type of uh, economist uh, where I believe that we should be investing uh, in, in ourselves and, and being able to make sure that these issues are being put forth. So everybody has a different perspective. I'm not going to vilify folks if they have a, a different one than mine. I just believe that we can use data and science, given the fact that we've seen what happened in 2008. We saw what happened in 2001. We know what happens when we use austerity. It doesn't work. Let's try something new. Let's try giving you know individuals, working families, the same types of benefits that you would give the largest corporations in the world and see what that does versus you know closing the, the budget holes on the backs of individuals. And, you know, obviously a lot of this is going to depend on what happens with control of the Senate. We would imagine that state relief would be probably more robust under a democratically controlled uh, Senate yeah. in Washington, D.C. And we know that yeah. uh, a lot of where we're hoping to make up our budget shortfall will be coming from federal dollars. So that's, you know, that that's an unseen picture right now. But uh, yeah. setting that aside for just a moment, where else would you like to make up the budget shortfall here in the state? Yeah, so that's actually a very good point. And what, what I will note that when the pandemic first happened, there were some cries to go into a special session. People were saying, let's go to a special session. Yeah, it was supposed and to happen last only, summer. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the only people that wanted to go to a special session in my th- that I saw wanted to make budget cuts. So at that point, I was like, nope, I don't think we should. And we should push back unless we have an actual plan. Because if we go and just make these drastic cuts, they have huge ramifications. And luckily we didn't because the the latest forecast showed that the budget price was as half of what we had thought it was going to be. So imagine if we had gone in and slashed the budget and then now seeing that the revenue actually is going to be a little bit better than we initially anticipated. But now these families don't need to be on the streets. Right? Like we need to have the information at hand. And one of the key pieces is what might come from the federal government. And there were indications that there could have been a deal in October because Trump wanted to have stimulus checks with his names on it. Uh, obviously, he's that incompetent that he can't even give out checks with his name on it. Um, but, you know, I am hopeful that the the next legislature, whether the Senate is controlled or not by the Republicans or Democrats, we will get some sort of stimulus. And to give you context, if we're able to get a similar amount that we did in 2008, that basically covers the gap that we have um, in the budget. And then we can then reinvest the dollars that we have into actually getting people into stable affordable housing into the health care that they need, uh, having access to early educating uh, education, having access to child care, right? Like we can stop going from a moment of crisis to the ability to invest in our future long term. You've also talked about progressive revenue streams um, separate from uh, whatever federal money may come our way. Um, I, I know that you know, capital gains tax is something that has been talked about for many, many yeah. years. Um, it never quite seems to make it over the finish line. I'll, I'll just ask you, yeah. what do you feel the impediments are in, in the state to a capital gains tax? Well, so even if you want to take a couple steps back, I think oftentimes the impediment, um, AOC actually mentioned this a little bit uh, this past weekend where people were trying to blame, John Kasich was trying to blame the progressive movement on uh, the potential loss of a Biden election, which is astounding given that progressives are the ones that rallied communities to come out like they had never done before. So I think oftentimes in our legislature, when you don't have people with the lived experiences and the values of regular working class people, that becomes lost. So um, when you have people who need, you know, a couple hundred dollars just to get by in that month to stay housed, that gets lost oftentimes in the legislature. So 
the difference between those conversations back then versus those conversations now is that you have the most diverse legislative body in the history of Washington state. Two years ago, when I was elected, I was elected also with, you know, Emily Randall, Mona Doss, Claire Wilson, other folks. We completely changed the dynamics of the Senate. So we doubled the number of women of color. Like the, the, the members of color caucus now is an actual block of people that can support working families. So I think that was one of the biggest impediment was just that like the people who were there, whether the intentions were good or not, that wasn't so much the case. It was never a prioritization to be able to address this issue. Uh, and I came in hot, like I came in along with other folks saying, we have to do this or else. Like people are actually dying on our streets. And just because you don't see it doesn't mean it doesn't happen. And I think having the ability to push inside and also outside certainly changes that tone. And, and I think, you know, the advocates uh, and the community leaders uh, have done such a fantastic job. Uh, candidly, uh, myself as a legislator, I am just trying to, to do the work that they have asked us to do. It is really their effort and their enthusiasm that got us to this point. But I do believe that capital gains certainly is on the table for this year, along with a few other options as well to make sure that we kind of right some of the wrongs of our tax code in Washington state. You want to talk about a few of those other options? Yeah. So here we'll go, we'll go really high level, really big. So BNO, I, I absolutely hate BNO in Washington state. BNO basically, because we don't have a corporate net income tax, we basically try to guess what profit margins are for certain industries and we put rates on top of those. And BNO um, stands all, for business and occupancy tax. Correct. Business and occupancy tax. Um, and then if you look at all the tax exemptions that we have right now, they're largely BNO. They're like three or 400 of them are BNO. Um, being able to reform that would be a huge deal. I don't know that we'll be able to get it done in this specific session, but that conversation is happening. How do we get, bitter, get rid of BNO and put something that is more progressive, put something that is more aligned with uh, helping people and also making sure that the folks who can afford it are actually paying their fair share? So that's one. Um, the high earners. So I have a bill called the excess compensation. Uh, my bill probably won't be the one that moves because it's very aggressive, but essentially the the, the goal is uh, it's actually very similar to what Arizona just did. So Arizona, which is uh, not a blue state, it is definitely purple. It was red and just is turning blue. They just passed an initiative by a vote of the people to raise um, the income tax of folks over $250,000. So basically, if you made over $250,000, they were going to raise uh, rates marginally on top of that so they can uh, afford to spend more money on education. So very similar proposal. In fact, what's funny is that the proposals that we're kicking around in Washington state is way more modest than what Arizona just did. And Arizona is not a blue state, you know? So uh, if they're able to do it in Arizona, we should be able to do it here. But the idea is that if you make over $250,000 a year, right, there'll be a marginal rate um, associated with that. And since we don't have an income tax, it would be a payroll or an excise fee. So say for instance, somebody makes a million dollars. This is hypothetical. Don't use these numbers besides illustration. If somebody makes a million dollars, that million and one dollar, if that marginal rate was 1%, their tax liability would be one cent. You know what I mean? So you can do this in a way that is very equitable where you don't necessarily harm folks on the lower end of the spectrum and then still raise a significant amount of money to be able to pay for things like childcare, education, social services, stuff like that things that sets people off on the right step so that way we can alleviate a lot of these systemic issues that we ha that we see at play that kind of keeps, you know, some people out. 
We will keep an eye on both of those things, adjustments to the B&O and high earners uh, tax proposals. And cap gains. Make sure you don't forget about cap and gains. And of course, capital gains. Yeah. Yeah, actually, I don't think I'm going to have to remind people on that one. I think yeah. people are, are, are waiting yeah. on, you know, with bated breath to see what's going to happen um, with yeah. that. I want to shift gears just a little bit here and talk about something that you tweeted recently, which was something yeah. called the uniformity clause. And this relates to why Washington doesn't have progressive taxation. Now, we are notorious in having the most upside down taxation uh, uh, structure in the United States, which, again, for a blue state is is just extraordinarily shameful on its face. Yeah. Um, you've said that. The reason, one of the key reasons that the Washington state uh, cannot uh, produce progressive taxation is because of what is called the uniformity clause in our Constitution. Can you tell us what the uniformity clause is and how does it prevent progressive taxation? So the uniformity clause in our Constitution basically says that property has to be taxed at the same rate. You cannot have progressive taxation in Washington state. It is, in fact, in our Constitution. However, just to be clear, the uniformity clause relates specifically to property, specifically to property. And then it just so happened that in Washington state back in the 1930s, mind you, a year after the Great Depression, there was a Supreme Court ruling that equated your income with property. So in Washington state, because of that court ruling, people suspect that you cannot have progressive income taxes in Washington state which then makes it kind of a non-starter for a lot of people as well. That's actually the reason why we have BNO. Because we weren't able to have progressive uh, taxation on income, the state created BNO as a stopgap until they can figure out a solution that was more long-term. That's back in 1930, and we haven't changed. So the BNO wasn't supposed to last very long. And then kind of the reason why that tweet took off a little bit, um, some Trump people were not, not happy about it, but it was a statement of fact. The uniformity clause was created in the 1800s, um, and even before then, because those who had enslaved people didn't want to pay more on their slaves than they did on other things, right? So they wanted to protect their wealth. They wanted to protect their assets. They didn't want uh, there to be higher taxes on the people that they'd enslaved, say, relative to their house. So they created what's called the uniformity clause because they didn't want to pay more taxes on slaves. Um, and then, you know, fast forward a little bit to the 1820s, 1830s. Uh, large landowners realized that, whoa, this uniformity clause that actually protects slave owners or those who are enslaved actually protects me because I'm just wealthy, right? So wealthy people then took that idea and then kind of ran with it. And then by the 1860s, just about every single state minus, I think, a couple, two or three, didn't have that in their constitution. So even though Washington state was never a slave-owning state, um, the wealthy landowners who helped found our, our state plus helped write the Constitution realized that this would also benefit them, even though the origins itself was through slavery. So that's kind of how uh, that came about. And it's interesting because I think uh, Illinois just had a initiative that failed where they were basically trying to challenge this as well. You, they try to raise it uh, to be able to allow for progressive taxation because of the uniformity clause. Um, and other states deal with something similar as well. But because we have that court ruling, it makes it difficult for us to do things in a way that I think is more equitable. 
I mean, well, two things that I will say about all that. First of all, I mean, it, it, it just keeps coming back over and over and over again how much systemic racism, institutional racism, pervades every single part of yeah. our government and maybe especially yeah. our taxation. But I, I will just ask you, and you can you know uh, expand on that if you choose to, but I would just ask you how we address something like this. I mean, is this a hearts and minds issue? Are, are, are we you know looking at it from a PR standpoint? Do we need a constitutional amendment? How do we change something like this? It would. It would. You know, candidly, Seattle did try, right? Like, um, if you look at the makeup of that Supreme Court in the 1930s, it's probably different than what it is now. So Seattle did try to have a, a, a court ruling to, to at least get another decision on this. Um, but at the very least, it would probably require a constitutional amendment in order to be able to change that. Um, and we would have to have a lot of provisions in place in order to kind of hash out what that new paradigm might look like. And that's why when you look at, say for instance, um, Seattle where they are trying to raise revenue in certain ways is because they're really you know, handcuffed in how they can actually raise revenue that doesn't violate the constitution. Washington State's the same way. The reason why we keep talking about capital gains or high earners or other things is that we don't have very many uh, funding mechanisms that allow us to do this well. Um, so, you know, there's two folds is you got to really take care of the budget that you see happening right now that's more equitable. And that's going to be cap gains. That's going to be excess compensation. Maybe it's something that relates to carbon so that we can help pay for transportation or something like that as well. Um, but systemically, it's the uniformity clause that is really holding us back. And, and candidly, the business community understands this as well. So um, in the early conversations we've had about this plus BNO, you know, business community understands that the way that our tax structure works it may benefit them to a certain point, but not not that far, right? Like they, they know that the increased needs in this state has to come from somewhere. And because we don't have anything on the personal side, it, it's going to be 100% on the business community because they, they, they don't want to argue that we need to invest in education, we need to invest in transportation. They know that they need it too. So it is in the best interest of the business community, the progressive community, all of our communities to have a fair tax structure because our future literally depends on it. I will just ask you, because I know that this is one of those things that takes a lot of moving parts in order to change, how do you see the progressive community fitting into the fight for a more equitable, progressive taxation structure here in the state? What can we do is what I'm asking ultimately. What I would say, I mean, obviously the values are aligned and the issues are there. Candidly, I think we need to stop vilifying each other. Right. Like there's a lot of left on left attacks oftentimes. And and, and, and Cameron, there's also you know attacks on the right. And I'm not saying that we need to say, oh, yeah, we just condone that that mess. But we should start working towards the solutions that we know will will live up to our values. So spend your energy uh, talking through the policies, talking through the issues that we know we need. Spend less time attacking other people. Uh, that's probably something that I would say. And the messaging is is going to be pretty clear as well. Um, when we talk about progressive taxation, when we talk about righting some of these wrongs, you know, the right does a very good job at storytelling and they do a very good job at painting bad, bad brushes on large swaths of people. Yet, if you look at kind of this last election, right, Arizona passed a tax increase on the wealthy. You know what I mean? Florida raised the minimum wage. Colorado paid, passed paid family leave. Nebraska you know, limited predatory lending, you know, you know, Arizona, Montana, New Jersey, South Dakota, legalized weed. The issues that we fight for are actually very popular, very, very popular. 
focus on the issues, and then let's fight for these issues for one another and not get caught up in the whole Trumpian mess. I think that is actually their goal. Trump's goal is not, well, it is the same power, but Trump's goal is to cause divisiveness and chaos. We have proven in this last election that when we band together, when we stick together as a Democratic Party or the left or the movement that wants to help people, we will win and we will win by significant numbers. Biden is over 5 million popular votes above Trump. He has the most votes in the history of America. You know what I mean? King County voted for Jay in the highest rates that they have in any other gubernatorial race, at least in the last four decades. So when we show up together and we fight together, we will win together. But too often, especially lately, we start bickering amongst ourselves. Focus on the task at hand. Let's fight and win together. And that's how we build a better future. I like that message a lot. I recognize that a big tent was constructed uh, from everyone from the Lincoln Project to AOC in response to a common enemy like Donald Trump. Um, The question now is going to be, can we keep that coalition together? And and, and yeah, so I think you're hitting on something very, very fundamental here. Um, And and honestly, these are the sorts of issues that I think we could talk about for hours and hours. But uh, I I do want to thank you so much for taking the time to really unpack a lot uh, of, of of these more complicated issues about taxation and austerity and, yeah. and making them very palatable for listeners. Um, I really appreciate your time. Yeah, no, and kind of one of the last things too is that uh, just because I keep hearing this in some of the conservative circles is that, oh, our budget is actually bigger than it was back then. It's bigger than it was back then, which is technically true because there's a lawsuit from McCleary that forced us to raise more revenue in order to pay for education. What I will leave a note on is that even though in 2008 we made these cuts and we've had literally the most robust economy in Washington state in the history of the state since then, we still aren't at the same levels in 2008 for funding as it relates to uh, TANF, as it relates to the housing trust fund, as it relates to whatever, affordability. We, We aren't even back at the levels that we were in 2008 for some of these key services that we need to move forward. So in my mind, um, focus, let's get the issues at hand, let's let's get them done. And that's how we're going to win as a movement. Senator Joe Wynn, thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. You have a good day. And that'll do it for today. Thanks again to Senator Joe Wynn. The website for our show is indivisiblepodcast.org and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at IndivisiblePod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.